Hello and welcome back to the Future Work Life podcast. My name is Ollie Henderson and as usual, I've got a fantastic guest for you today. Today I'm speaking to Austin Belsack. Austin has had a really interesting career, having spent some time in the corporate world working for Microsoft among others. He used the insights he'd developed over that time to start writing and sharing content on LinkedIn. Five years later, he has 1.35 million followers. That's over 1 million people who are regularly reading the lessons that he's sharing about helping people land amazing jobs and achieve their potential. Now, one of the great things about this podcast for me has always been that I've got to learn from my guests. As you might expect when you speak to the excellent people that I have on the show, I'm learning really quickly all the time. And I mention that because it's one of the themes that Austin and I discuss in the podcast, particularly in relation to how you can combine the creation of content with networking to accelerate your learning and career development. We also discuss how Austin has accumulated so many followers. Clue, there's no hack involved. There's a lot of hard work and quality content being created. We also discuss the CV, why it needs to be replaced, and some effective alternatives for people to demonstrate their experience and expertise. Thanks as ever for listening to the show. If you enjoy this conversation, I definitely recommend you check out my book, Work-Life Flywheel, which is out in January. It includes lessons from hundreds of people that I've spoken to over the past couple of years who have mastered their areas of focus, particularly after having pivoted career like Austin. So without further ado, let's jump into my conversation with Austin Belsack. Now, Austin, you've grown a huge audience on LinkedIn. Um very quickly, really, relative to the size of the audience. Tell us, what's the simple, what's the easy way for us all to build a huge audience on LinkedIn? Yeah, no problem. I mean, this is, I've been waiting for somebody to ask me, Ali, so I, I, I appreciate <laughs> you. Um, the, the simple answer, and we can dive much deeper into this if you'd like, but the simple answer is uh, I've essentially committed to sharing one high quality piece of content every single day for the last, you know, now it's, it's five years uh, at this point, but basically that was my commitment when I started. And there was a lot that, that went into that, but I found that to be a really good goal that allowed me to focus on the stuff that would actually drive the, the things that I wanted, the outcomes that I wanted in the right ways. Uh, and so I think a lot of people show up and they want to build an audience and they go for, you know, some sort of content, like how do you get 30,000 followers in 30 days? Or how do I go viral mm-hmm. or all these other things? And typically, you know, those tactics, they either they either don't work or they work for the moment and they're not really a sustainable way to grow. And so I found that by removing the focus on follower count or any of these kind of vanity metrics that we tend to to dial into and by shifting my focus and my goals to creating high quality content, that really allowed me to build out systems and habits and processes that led to what I really wanted, which was high quality content. Cause I knew if I was sharing that regularly, everything else would fall into place. Of course, my question was slightly ironic because uh, there's no simple way to do that. Although actually I love the way you break it down there because while this is simple in theory, it's of course way more difficult in practice to be that consistent for five years. I mean, you must've had times where you've doubted whether either is the right strategy or whether you had the staying power perhaps early on. Oh, absolutely. And and I think, you know, you bring up a good point, which is that the recipe is fairly simple. In my opinion, you know, it's, it's, you need to have a process for coming up with ideas. You need to have a process for synthesizing those ideas into a post. Then you need to be willing to share that post and engage with other people. And then the last, the last element and maybe the most important element is having a process to reflect on your content and understand what's working and what's not. And if you have those four things, you're going to be successful. But the key is you're not going to be successful unless you commit to those four things for a long period of time. And we're talking like six months minimum, more realistically, 12 months. And then the real growth comes, you know, further down the road. So, you know, I'm connected to a bunch of people who have really big audiences, you know, people who are in similar circles, six figure, seven figure audiences. And I don't know a single one of them that went from zero to six figures in a shorter period of time than what I'm talking about. And so Mm. that is intimidating in one sense, because it's like, well, I have to sit down and do this thing for a year if I want to see results. But I also find it comforting in the fact that 
a lot of success can be attributed to just showing up every day and outlasting other people and just continuing to be a learner for a long period of time. And so I almost found comfort in that where I knew that if I showed up and did those four things every day, every week, and I just committed to that for a year, that there would be some sort of success on the other side. So it is interesting because the recipe is simple, but the execution and the consistency are are really, really tough. Yeah, 100%. Uh, it's interesting if you sort of dig in there to what you broke down, of course, data will have played a part in steering how you developed your content. But um, to, to what extent is it data-driven or analytics-driven versus passion and motivation? Because clearly to have the du- durability, to have that staying power, it's got to be something that you find inherently interesting and rewarding, right? I mean, you can't just be led by the numbers. There's got to be a bit of a balance there. Definitely. And and I want to answer that. I also want to make sure I answer your other question about the uh, just kind of the mental aspect of content creation, because I think that's really important. And I don't want to gloss over that because uh, I certainly have had times where I have been incredibly burned out and have had to kind of find my way through those periods. So I, I want to make sure that we we answer that. But to talk about the data-driven versus passion piece, when you start, it's really, really important to pick a topic that you are passionate about. Because like we mm. talked about, if you're going to write something five days a week for over a year, you have to be interested in what you're talking about. Otherwise, it's just not going to stick, right? You're going to lose it at some point because you're just not interested in, and that's going to be a tough rock to push up the hill. So we do need to start with something that we are really inherently interested in or passionate about, curious about. But then once you get through that honeymoon phase, you do need to build out systems. And if you really want to grow, you do need to have an analytics focus because if you build it, they may not come, right? I know so many content creators who just create, they put stuff out there, they just share whatever's on their mind and they're not growing and they wonder why. They, they wonder why nobody's showing up and, and they get frustrated. And this is like anything else. It's a channel, right? Where we have something that we're creating, we have an audience that's consuming it, certain things that we create resonate better than others. And so if we wanna improve, we need to understand what resonates better then we need to understand why it resonates better. And then we need to build systems around creating more of that content that resonates. So that's why I mentioned before, you know, I I said this was the most important part of the system. Obviously, you know, creating content and posting it is the most important part. Nothing else works without that. But right behind that is this reflection and analysis piece. And this is actually the piece that I see the vast majority of creators either completely missing or completely overlooking or not diving deep enough into. So for me, my personal process over the last you know five years, I used to do it on a monthly basis. I, I back that out to quarterly as I get more comfortable with it. Uh, now I do it a, a little bit uh, fewer and further in between. But essentially, I had a three three part process. So I would sit down and I would start by looking at my my top posts for the last you know X period of time. So it might be my top five posts from the last month, or my top you know five percent of posts over the last quarter, whatever it is. I'm going to make a list of those. And then the next thing I'm going to do is I have a a list of creators that that I respect and whose content I like. I'm going to go through their feeds and I'm going to find a a couple of posts from each of them that perform significantly above average. So I'm going to go through their post feeds and I'm just going to try to to estimate what their average is. This isn't like a scientific, you know, algorithmic setup. It's it's literally just, hey, most of these posts are, are at this amount. And whoa, here's one that's 3x, 4x. I'm going to grab that 3x or 4x post. And I'm going to try to come up to come up with about 15 or 20 of them um, across all the creators. So maybe 10 creators are, 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 are making up that 15 to 20 posts. And then last but not least, I'm going to spend about a week going through the platform and just looking for posts that have a repeatable formula and have also done really, really well. So if somebody comes out and says, you know, I came from, you know, I grew up in, in this background with you know these kinds of parents and and did this thing and that and that experience is totally different from me like me and and what I can offer that's not repeatable but if somebody comes out and says you know here are four pieces of advice I'd give to my 18 year old self and that explodes I can repeat that so I might grab that post and I'm going to try to find 10 of those and so essentially what I have here is I have my best content I have the the best content from content creators that I want to emulate and look up to And then I have some of the best content that the algorithm and the platform is pushing. 
So I'm going to take all that and I'm going to go through an analysis. And basically the analysis um, consists of going through each post and first uh, assigning a, a topic to it. So this is kind of the overarching umbrella. Then I'll assign a subtopic to it. Um, so for example, you know, MySpace is job searching. So an overarching topic might be uh, like resumes, uh, but then a subtopic might be something like resume templates or resume bullets or, uh, you know, how do you optimize your resume, right? All these different things. So I, I start with those two. Um, and then I try to assign a style to the post. So that's typically the way the post is structured. Is it like a listicle? Is it a, you know, now versus then? Um, these are all kind of labels that I've come up with, but I try to assign a style to it. I look at the character count. Um, I rate the hook, which is the first couple of lines. I self-rate it. So it's, again, not very scientific, um, but I have that. Uh, and then I come up with two to three hypotheses for why I think the post did well. And I basically do that across all of the posts we mentioned, which is probably going to be in the ballpark of about 30 to 40 posts. When I'm done with that, I can analyze all of that data. And basically what I can pull out of it is what are the top performing topics? What are the top performing subtopics? What's the average character count for posts that are performing super well right now? Uh, and then what hypotheses am I seeing across all of these posts? Like which ones are, are a common thread? And so mm. I take all of that and I build it into a checklist. And so every post I write after that goes through that checklist. So it, it has to be within that certain character count range. It should be focused on these topics, um, et cetera, et cetera. And what that allows me to do is bake in all of the success that I'm seeing from myself, from other creators I emulate and the platform. And it allows me to bake it into my, my content moving forward. And I think that that is a lot more in depth than many creators go into with this type of analysis. Um, but it's also so key because every post that you write and every time you go through this cycle, you're learning more, you're starting from an elevated base that's just giving your post a better chance of being successful so I think a lot of people, once you get in that rhythm of I'm creating content, I'm sharing it every day, and you do that for a month or two, then it's time to go through that reflection process. And that's really, that's where you're going to start to see that hockey stick growth with your your following and your engagement over the next, you know, eight months or whatever it is until you hit that 12 month mark. Yeah. Great breakdown. Thank you. I mean, you can, clearly you think about this a lot. So um, it was a really nice, clear articulation of your process. And I, I've got two following questions from that i mean firstly i know you post once per day i mean without fail pretty much i guess over the past five years and I, look, i've spoken to justin welsh and um you know some other creators who obviously i know you know well justin posts multiple times a day and that requires you know clearly more volume around the types of posts that he's doing but have you found an optimal number that fits your work life your lifestyle have you found a number which is good enough it could it be done in fewer posts per week do you see what i mean i mean i'm finding this myself you know i've been probably for the last six months just kind of dipping my toes into the water of content creation and i've probably made some of the classic mistakes which is burning out far far quickly i haven't got the same power of you sadly at this point um but i've gone through stages of doing two a day then i've had to come back and you know maybe i'm lucky if i get three or four out a week and i'm just trying to find a cadence that it fits within the the busyness of my life and the other commitments that i've got so i suppose is there a minimum number which allows you to get that kind of critical mass or is it again is it experimentation is this a personal thing yeah so before i jump into that let me ask you a question ali which is how how many social platforms are you managing right now Right now, just one, just LinkedIn, because I okay. was doing, I tried doing LinkedIn and Twitter and it was even just doing the same post, but adapting it was just taking too long. So I've reverted back to just LinkedIn now. Awesome. So I love to hear that because oftentimes I ask that question and people tell me they're all over the place, right? They're on TikTok, mm. they're on LinkedIn, they're on Twitter and all these places. And that's the first piece of advice I have for anybody is, is to just focus on one platform and keep working through that until you master it. Because as, as you just said, and, and I've experienced this too, every platform has its nuances and its differences. And being able to bake those into every single post, posting three, five, however many days a week, it's, it's, it's a recipe for burnout. So mm. I, I ran into that. I, I started my business and was across every social platform and never saw success and was burning out and hated it. And then I scaled back. I started first with SEO and then I moved to LinkedIn, but I, I had only LinkedIn was the only social platform I focused on 
for a really long time, actually. And, and that's what allowed me to, to grow was just this singular focus on this one platform, learning the ins and outs. So for anybody listening who's on multiple platforms, especially platforms that don't feel like they, they resonate with you. Like for me, I, I, I cannot do video content. It, it burns me out. It exhausts me. It's not energizing. It's not fun. So you won't, you won't find me on TikTok. You won't find me on mm-hmm. Instagram, even though, you know, we hear about how, how, how much visibility there is on TikTok and all this stuff. I just know it's not a sustainable medium for me and I wouldn't have fun doing it. Whereas writing, I love writing. It, it gives me energy. It excites me, all that stuff. So Twitter, LinkedIn, so much easier for me to do those platforms because it, it plays to my strengths. So that's yeah. what I would think about. And the, the average person, I just, um, I was just reading this. The average person has eight social media accounts. So I think a lot of people get caught up in the right platform, but chances are that your, your audience is on every platform. Like, mm-hmm most people are on all the ones we just mentioned. So it's less about the right platform and more about the right medium. Because if you find the right medium that you feel confident in, that's fun, that's exciting, that's what's going to connect with that audience, right? Not like TikTok because it's, it's virality is so big right now. So that's the first thing that I would say. And then to more directly answer your question, really what we're balancing here is, uh, you know, our mental health and the quality of our posts with volume. That's that's the equation here. So of course, you know, if you put more posts out there, you're going to get more volume. And that's across the board. We're going to get more data that we can use through our analysis. We're going to get more impressions and views and, and reactions and all that stuff, because that's what happens when you post more. It's also really freaking hard to do that. So Justin can do that because Justin's been creating content for about the same amount of time. And he has a massive backlog, not just on LinkedIn, but he's been doing Twitter for, uh, I think, over a year now as well. So he has a backlog of content that spans five years in multiple platforms. So posting three times a day um, is not that tough because he comes up with new content and then, you know, can repurpose some content as well. And I don't think I'm sharing any of his trade secrets, uh, but Justin, if I am, I I apologize. Um, On my side, it's a similar setup, but I found that if I go beyond once per day, that's, that's just not good for my mental health and the quality of my posts. So for me, I've, I've done Monday through Friday. Uh, I've never done the weekends and I've done that basically forever with the exception of a vacation. If I take a vacation or, or whatever it is, I'm not posting because the stress of getting on LinkedIn and posting and doing all that, like what's the point of the vacation if I'm, if I'm worried about it. And that's not always easy, especially when you're starting to see that traction and growth, but it's so worth it because taking that time away and having a healthy relationship with the social platform, that's really where you're going to create that longevity that we talked about. That's going to allow you to be successful. So I would say that if you're starting out, I think a minimum viable number is three times a week. I think the ideal number for most people in terms of balancing growth with bandwidth is probably five times a week. And I think anything more than that is is only beneficial if it does not impact the quality of your posts or your bandwidth and your mental health. Great. You've given me encouragement now. I feel better. (laughs) I love it. Yeah, just say, look, I mean, it's more manageable, isn't it? And I think what you and Justin and other creators are brilliant at is sharing the knowledge and encouraging other people to participate. And I think that's brilliant. But you can't help but look at the way that other people do it. And because you see the consistency in the volume, it can be discouraging in itself. So it's really good to hear that kind of, I suppose, realism and pragmatism around the way to approach it. So that's great. I thought now we could kind of flip towards some of your expertise around, as you mentioned, helping people develop their careers. Because, you know, there's so much gold within the content that you share. And I highlighted a few areas I think are important to people right now. And as as we record this, you know, we're entering a recession. I think lots of people are concerned about their careers and about their jobs. But equally, if you're ambitious, there's no reason why you shouldn't be smart about the way you go about your career development. So a few questions just to kick off. And one would be what the key differences are between those people who are in the best roles and perhaps those who take a little longer to find the right opportunity. Definitely. So really what it comes down to is is the people who are in the best roles, they're they're proactive uh, and they also have, you know, a, a bit of a, a, a curiosity or, you know, they, they don't have a fear of stepping outside the box. So to expand on those two things, you know, proactivity is really huge. I talk to so many job seekers who they show up, you know, at our door, they're, they're looking for help. 
and they tell me, you know, I, 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 I need a new job, you know, quickly. And they're starting from scratch, you know, they're applying online, whatever, they're not doing much networking. And essentially, the job search to them is is something that that begins the moment that you need a new job, and it ends mm-hmm. the moment that you get a job. And that is one way to do it. But that is a very tough way to do it. And And I don't blame people because nobody like, nobody wants to keep job searching, right? It's it's a pretty miserable experience. And that's not necessarily what I'm advocating for. But instead, there are certain things that we can continue to do after we're, we land that job or when we're, we're in a stable job that can help prepare us for the future. And one of those things is networking, right? So the mm-hmm. people who are in the best jobs, they're essentially always networking. And it's not anything crazy. Like they just make a habit out of, you know, we just talked about creating content. They, they have the same habits just for networking. So instead of posting every day, it's let me reach out to one new person every day, or let me touch base with somebody I haven't spoken to in over a month, you know, every day. And that just allows them to, to build new relationships and also keep old relationships warm. So if you're reaching out to one person every weekday, you know, I think there's roughly 240 weekdays in the year, give or take, my math's probably not right. But anyways, if that's the number, right, we have 240 opportunities to connect with people. Even if your response rate is is crazy low, even if it's like 5%, you still are going to have a pretty decent volume of contacts that are are going to converse with you and help you and, and be an advocate for you and enter into your network. And, and that's really low, right? Like we're probably going to see a, a higher rate than that. So when that happens and you're strategic about it, especially if you know, you know, where you want to go next. So maybe I'm, I'm in my role now, but I know that a couple of years from now, my hope is to be in this new type of role, more senior, different field, whatever it is at these types of companies, you know, making this type of money. Then we can be much more targeted where the, the 200 people that we reach out to are people who are working in those jobs now who can influence our ability to get hired in those jobs a couple of years from now. And all of a sudden, when the time comes, you know, first of all, what ends up happening with those people is that they don't typically have to job search. Typically, the opportunities come to them because they're in a role, they're doing their networking, and one of their contacts comes to them and says, you know, hey, Ollie, by the way, I don't know if you're interested. It seems like you're happy at your job, but we just opened up this new role on our team, and I'd be happy to, to pass your name along. And all of a sudden, you're like, well, I wasn't planning to job search, but this is checking all the boxes of where I wanted to be in two years. Yeah. It's only been one year. Let me go after it. So, that's typically what happens. But even if that doesn't happen, something changes on your end, you want a job search. Now you have this expanded network of people that are in all of the right places that you can tap into. So that's one of the biggest things that that we see. That's probably the single largest differentiating factor. But the second one would be the folks who who are not afraid to step out of the box to find ways to accelerate their career. So there's obviously a multitude of, of ways that this can happen. But these are people who um, maybe have a, a side hustle. Um, obviously, that's not realistic for, for everybody, um, you know, given people's situations. But that's one example. These are people who are maybe taking courses outside of work. Um, these are, are people who are finding creative ways to get their value noticed. Maybe they're creating content on LinkedIn or another social platform. Um, maybe they have a podcast, you know, Basically, what they're doing is they're saying, okay, I have my nine to five and I'm, I'm generating experience in that time frame. But what else can I do to increase you know, my growth and accelerate my learning? Because that's really what it comes down to, right? When we apply for jobs, there's basically two things. There, there's the, the value that the company is looking for, and there is the way that we illustrate that value. And so the, the value the company is looking for is kind of a fixed thing, right? They're looking for somebody with 10 years of experience and, and these kinds of credentials. Like that doesn't really change. But what does change is uh, how we, we get that value and how we illustrate it. And so if you and I both work the same job, but you have, you know, this podcast that you bring on, you know, amazing people and you learn from them or whatever, you're just learning so much more outside of work than I am about, you know, different things, right? And that's obviously a very simplified example. But it goes to show that if we do a little bit extra in different capacities, we're just building more knowledge faster. And that's going to allow us to be more qualified in a shorter period of time. And then the second thing is finding those different ways to illustrate your value. You know, so many job seekers, they rely on resumes or cover letters, the traditional process. And, you know, I, my background's in sales and marketing. Uh, I can tell you firsthand that those are all very, very terrible ways to sell anything. Like they don't follow any sales best practices. 
And so if we step outside that box and we think about, well, what are good ways for me to sell myself? Uh, then we, we really start to differentiate. So creating content on LinkedIn, you own your message, you own what you create, you own the way that people see it and you build that brand. Something we, we coach job seekers on is what I call a value validation project, which is basically putting together a, a five to seven slide deck where we research the company, we understand you know opportunities, challenges, whatever. We come up with some ideas that are directly related to that role and we share that. And that tends to be much more effective because it's on our terms. It's focused on the value we want to share. And it's also a medium that people are used to receiving information and pitches in, whereas a resume is not. So those are just a couple of examples, but those those top professionals, they tend to have different ways that they use to convey their value that play to their strengths and aren't necessarily just aligned to a traditional process for the sake of, you know, doing what what we're supposed to do. Oh, there's so much to follow up on now. I've tried to make a note of a few of those things. But I mean, just from personal experience, I mean, I you mentioned earlier on, what advice would you give your 18 year old self? I mean, when I was 18, these channels didn't really exist and certainly not at the scale they exist now. But I have, funnily enough, had um, some really young guys contact me a couple of times over the past couple of years who've got podcasts. Two of them were 17 years old. They were still at high school. They are now at university. And I and, and no, I know where they are because we connected on LinkedIn after I was on their show. We talked about you know some really interesting topics that they'd uh, followed me and said, hey, look, specifically, Ollie, look, would you come on our show and talk about this? I've never met these guys, never heard of them. But of course I said yes. And now we connected and they follow my work and I follow their work. And they don't finish college for three years. But I'm telling you, those they're not going to struggle getting a job because they've got the proactivity that you mentioned. And also there's this complementary effect, I think. So for example, the networking point is a great one. You know, contact one person a day or, you know, five a week or 10 a week, whatever the number is. But when you can attach that connection with something else. So for example, I write a newsletter. I saw you do a really great post the other day on this specific subject. I'd love to chat to you for half an hour so I can write about it in my new newsletter. I mean, suddenly relevance it's relevant it shows that you've done a bit of research people are more likely to connect and it builds a better relationship and i've seen that with my book i've just I've, my book's been published in january i'll tell you what when you when you're writing a book and you contact someone and said i'd love to include your insights in my book what do you think <laughs> they say i mean they usually say yes and so i think you're completely right i think sometimes pairing up those two habits those two practices that the networking and the developing content in some ways actually you get a outsized benefits or greater than the sum of its parts so anyway i was thinking there what advice would i give my 18 year old self and probably that would be it well and and i love you mentioned the podcast thing podcasts are actually one of my favorite unconventional ways to network because networking is essentially having a conversation with somebody and learning about their story and their background and and mm. all this stuff and, and then trying to find ways to add value and and you know get that reciprocity going and that's basically what a podcast is but so many of the people we want to connect with are, are they feel hard to reach. And sometimes they are, right? We reach out to a, a VP at, at a company that we want to work for and say, hey, will you get on the phone for 30 minutes to talk about your career? That's, that's usually a no if you approach it that way. But if you email them and say, hey, you know, I saw, I, I, I've, I've seen your, your background and your growth and how you went from here to here to here. And, and now working in this VP role, it's so interesting. I have a podcast on that. Like, I'd love to have you on. To your point, the yeses, you know, the, the the chance of getting that significantly increases. And it's beautiful because, you know, you can start a podcast for free. You can use like an anchor or or any of these, you know, you could distribute it yourself for free. There's no mm. no cost to entry. You maybe get like a little bit of an upgraded mic. You just think about what field you want to get into. So if it's like if I want to get into sales, but I'm coming from a non-traditional background, maybe I create a podcast called like non-traditional sales. And then the description yeah. is like stories from, you know, top salespeople who broke into the field from a non-traditional background. And then I go make a list of all of these people working in my target sales roles at my target companies who came from a non-traditional background. I just send them a message and say, hey, I have this podcast where we tell the stories of people who break who broke into sales from a non-traditional background. I found your background on LinkedIn. It's really impressive. Like, would you be up for for an interview? I'd love to share your story on the podcast. And that person's probably going to say yes, because they, they typically haven't been asked to be on a podcast. It's really cool to be able to tell your story. And then you get to sit down with them for an hour, talk to them about all of this stuff. And that's all ammunition that you can use to add value to them. But you've already added value to them because the psychology of inviting somebody on your podcast, they're like, wow, 
Like you're honoring me and my story. You're recognizing me and my story. I feel valued and seen. So you're starting from a place where you've already added value to them. Then you're getting an hour's worth of information to add more Mm. value to them. And now you have a relationship to your point with this person who is in a specific place to refer you into a job you want and help you get hired. It's like a magical formula that (laughs) I think everybody should be using. And actually you mentioned before about learning. I mean, you know, let's be honest, if you had arranged a call with somebody random you'd never met before and said, do you mind if I just record this conversation? You'd <laughs> think it was a bit odd, right? But of course, this is the very point of a podcast. I mean, you know, I we're recording this conversation. And actually, I've made a real point for, and I've been doing this podcast about two years now. Um, and I could have, I could have outsourced much of its production to other people. I could have. But I actually do it myself still. And you know why? Because I take the recording, I put it into Descript, which is a brilliant editing platform where it transcribes it all into text. I then use that to edit it. And again, I could get someone to edit it, but I use it to edit it because what am I doing? I'm reading through and I'm picking out the best bits. And I take some of those key questions and key learnings to put into my newsletter and then explore those ideas in the newsletter. And actually some of that then made it into the book. So I've kind of created a flywheel of content which feeds into my learning but I get so much value that I can directly attribute to that process so yeah good stuff can I just go back to your point so I'm I'm a bit obsessed with this at the moment and it's you know I think the resume and it's the CV the if ever there was an artifact of the past which isn't relevant (laughs) for the future is this but of course as you suggested, if you look at talent acquisition, sometimes some of this process is automated. So you literally have to tick boxes in terms of the stuff you put on a CV. But in your experience right now, how many businesses are thinking beyond this? How many companies are assessing value outside of the usual norms? So for example, finding somebody through LinkedIn, you know, how much can that actually directly result in opportunities versus having to just submit your CV and make sure that it's got the right keywords in it? Yeah, so I there are two questions that I'm hearing you ask. And one is, how are companies thinking about essentially the, the, the mediums they're using to assess candidates? And then also, yeah. what mediums are working for candidates? So on the company side, you know, unfortunately, the the companies that have the most influence on this process, uh, it, the, the traditional process works for them. And so, you know, what I mean by that is when we look at Fortune 500 companies, uh, you know, FANG or now I guess MANG companies or whatever we want to call mm-hmm. them, um, they have a ton of money. They get a ton of applicants and everybody wants to work there. So they don't really have a need to change the status quo. Of course, there are things that could be improved about the process, but overall, you know, they're getting enough applicants where their concern is, how do I filter through these applications efficiently and effectively? And less about how do I, you know, find better ways to to source talent because they already have all of the talent. So mm. what we're seeing is more of these smaller companies that are looking for competitive advantages. They're the ones who are are trying to find more creative ways to hire and, and assess talent. And I mean, we're, we're an example of that. You know, I hired a, a career coach early, earlier this year and, you know, we threw up an application online for sure, but we had all the applicants come in. We looked at everything, but I didn't really look at people's resumes. I, and I actually put in the job description, like, it doesn't matter what your background is. Like, if you're interested in this, like, we'll train you up. And so rather than looking at resumes, I, I had some other questions that I asked that were more specifically geared towards understanding the person's psychology, how they may view problem solving, things of that nature. Uh, and then we also had an assessment, but I paid people for the assessment, which is something that a, a lot of companies don't do. But I essentially took the hourly rate for the salary we would be paying this person. I, I capped them at X number of hours, and I basically gave them a couple of very specific exercises. And so they got paid for the work that they did at the rate that they would be making if they worked for us. But we got to really understand, you know, how does this person think through things? And so those are just a couple of examples of, of how we've thought about this. But we have to, because I don't have the luxury of everybody wanting to come work for for my company, right? So on the company side, I think we are seeing some smaller companies get creative, but by and large, the the highly sought after companies that most people are targeting have the focus still on some of these you know more traditional processes. 
if we flip that to the candidate side, which is what mediums are are working for candidates, um, because of that, you know, the traditional mediums are are a really tough game to play. If we look at the data, um, and and this is from you know a variety of sources, but basically, if you apply for a job online, you're competing with anywhere from 250 to 300 other people on average. And and that's an average, right? Whereas like Google got 50,000 resumes a week, you know, as of a couple of years ago, I'm sure it's, it's more now. Um, so as you go up in company caliber, you, that's going to increase. But if we use that average and we do the math, we basically have about a 2% chance of getting in the door for an interview if we apply for a job online. So not even an offer, not even a final round, mm-hmm. just like that phone screen, 2% chance. So, the, the weird part is that 75% of people out there use these online applications as their primary method for, you know, chasing new opportunities. And they do that because it's, it's what we're taught, right? And, and it's kind of the obvious thing. You go to LinkedIn, you see LinkedIn jobs, and it says apply, or you go to a company website, and it says apply. And, and that's, that's the de facto channel. But the problem then is we have 75% of people all competing for this 2% chance of getting in the door for an interview. So that makes it really, really tough. But the interesting thing then is like, where are the hires coming from? If they're not coming from online applications, where are they coming from? And the, the answer is referrals. So depending on your data source, referrals make up anywhere from 40% to 80% of hires. And that also depends on, you know, the company, the team, the hiring manager, but only 10% of applicants go through that channel. So basically, if you're applying online, you're competing with 75% of the, the market for a 2% chance of getting an interview. Whereas if you go through the channel of getting referrals, you're competing with 10% of the market for a 40 to 80% chance of actually getting the job. So if you talk about a blue ocean, I mean, that that's like the definition right there. And so in my mind, you know, we still don't get me wrong, like, we should still apply for jobs online, you still need a resume. But I think that the time that you allocate to each of these is is not set up correctly for most job seekers. Most job seekers spend, are spending 80 to 90% of their time on online applications and 10% of their time on networking. And that networking is usually pretty bad networking. It's sending you an email and saying, hey, Ali, you work at this company. You know, I want to work there too. My resume is attached. You know, can you introduce me to somebody? Just like a direct, like going right for the jugular, like not no niceties, just like help mm-hmm. me get a job. And that doesn't work. So I recommend that people flip that. I recommend that we get more specific about the companies and roles that you want to target. And then if a role opens up, you have a way to optimize your resume and personalize it in 15, 20 minutes, and then you apply. And that takes up 10 to 20% of your time. And then the 80% that remains, we focus 100% on networking, building relationships with the right people. Because again, that's what the data is telling us is is driving hires and gives us the best opportunity. You mentioned before about asking some questions when you were hiring, and I'm interested if you can remember that off the top of your head, or perhaps just the types of questions that you were you're asking people, and also as well as a follow up, how successful that was because I've hired hundreds of people over the years, and I always struggled now when I think back to make sure that the hiring process and particularly the interview process was effective and you weren't being driven by bias and that you were selecting ultimately the people who had the most or the highest likelihood of success. So I'm always fascinated to hear when people put their own spin or bring a slightly unique take on it. So I I pulled up the application here. Um, And so essentially the questions that I asked were, First and foremost, why are you interested in working as a career coach at Cultivated Culture, my company? The second was what makes you uniquely qualified to coach someone during their dream job search? The third is how have you seen success in the career job search space before? What kind of results have you generated? Uh, the next one is what is your job search philosophy? You know, In other words, what approach do job seekers need to take in today's market to be successful? And then what is the coolest thing you've built or taught yourself in the past 12 months? And so to to kind of break these down, yeah, like the first one, why are you interested in working here? You know, obviously (laughs) having a good answer to that is important. And we were looking for people who genuinely wanted to work at our company and knew about our company and and had done their research. Um, And that's pretty cookie cutter. But what makes you uniquely qualified to coach somebody during their dream job search you know, this, this creates a space for people to, to share, um, you know, what, what different differentiates them from the crowd and, you know, what they bring to the table that other people don't. And all these are free form too. So people can write whatever they want. I did put a a word max on them. So it wasn't like crazy, 
Um, mm -hmm. The next one, you know, how have you seen success in the career job search space before? I even wrote a little note that said like, it could be as a formal career coach, it could be helping family and friends, or it could be, you know, landing your own job. So just giving people some guidance and, and you know, expanding the, the parameters there, but just allowing people to talk about the success that they've seen, the results that they've seen in this space. Uh, and then their philosophy, we just get to understand how they view this. And this is great because, you know, we're talking all about this now, but if somebody comes in and they say to me, I think the way to land a job in today's market is to have a great resume and just apply for a ton of jobs. You know, that's not in line with our job search philosophy. And so therefore that person probably isn't a good fit. Whereas if somebody comes in and they talk about networking and finding unique ways to add value and everything that you and I have talked about so far, that shows that this person uh, has either done their research and understands us, or we're just philosophically aligned um, in general. And then the coolest thing that you've built or taught yourself in the past 12 months is just one of my favorite application slash interview questions in general, because it gives people space to talk about anything, like a big win, either personally, professionally, like on any scale. And it's really cool to see what people bring to the table. You get a lot of fun answers for that one. So I felt like these questions allowed us to really get a deep understanding of who this person was and what they brought to the table. And it also gave the person creative freedom to showcase, you know, their value and their experience in what they bring to the table on their own terms and in their own words versus being forced into the box of a, you know, an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper called the resume where we use this like super weird language that we never use anywhere else. Right. <laughs> so this is yeah. how we approached it. Um, and then we did the assessment in this. It, they, they met with me first, we did the assessment after that. Then they met with one other person on my team after that. We had a three round process that was done in about two weeks. And then we either, you know, we, we made the hiring decision after that, basically. Brilliant. There was an important point you made there as well, which is your own experience can guide the way that you think about helping others um, achieve a similar result. And, uh, you know, clearly, you know, the way you came to all of this was through your own experience you weren't a as far as i understand i don't think you were a qualified career coach necessarily you just had lots of relevant experience which you were able to share with others and you've kind of cultivated that and built upon it and then added people in your team by the sounds of it now who perhaps combine some of the traditional experience with their own you know self-taught and um, learned the hard way type approach is that, that be a fair representation Oh, absolutely. I mean, that was one of the most interesting things for me is I wanted to jump into the space, but everywhere I looked, it was somebody who'd worked in HR for 20 years or somebody who'd mm. been career coaching for 10 years. Or all, like when I, when I did a search for career coach early on before starting the website, there was like a million results. And I was like, okay, like this is who I have to compete with and, and stand out from. But no, you're, you're right. Like I was a job seeker who struggled with the job search process and develop a system that worked for me that I thought could work for other people. And so I shared that and it got a really good response. And then we just started refining it across other people. So I, I didn't have any certifications, qualifications, you know, didn't go through any coaching programs, anything like that. I just had my own experience and was just sharing that. And that's, that's what the whole thing started off of. I've got a question related to this um, and I feel like framing it in that context is, is useful. I read you right that you don't have long-term plans or specifically, I think you said you don't have a 10 year plan. Um, why is that? And, and, you know, you must have some idea about where you want to be going. So, I mean, when you say you don't have a 10 year plan, is that more a sense that you keep your options open in terms of the way you get there? Or do you literally just think sort of day to day or maybe perhaps year to year? What's your approach? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm really glad you asked about this. That's one of, uh, that post tends to be one of my more popular ones, but also controversial. Like I get a lot of uh, comments on, on both sides of the equation and <laughs> people are always telling me, well, how do you succeed without goals and how do you know where you're going and all this other stuff? And so, um, you know, basically the way that I think about it is when I look five to 10 years ahead, I, I have no idea, you know, what's going to happen. And I, I think anybody who tells themselves that they do is, 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 <laughs> either lying to themselves or, or is, is in for potentially a rude awakening. And I, I think the best evidence that we have for that is the last three years of our existence as human beings, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's December, 2019. And we're all, you know, my wife and I are going to Thailand in February and, and we had all these other trips planned and all this stuff. And then boom, like global pandemic, right. Which upends everything. And obviously that's not going to happen frequently, but there are, 
these things in life that we can't control for or account for opportunities, um, things that change, you know, um, things that change for the good and for the bad. And so I think that if we, if we wed ourselves to too rigid of a plan too far in the future, um, we tend to miss out on, on opportunities. We also tend to set ourselves up for, uh, I think, um, a disappointing ride for most of the way, because one of the things that, that I kind of have to practice every day is like, I call it enoughness. But one of the things I don't like about traditional goals is that the way they're set up is, you know, if I have a goal, let's say to get to, uh, 2 million LinkedIn followers, right. I, I'm, I, every day that I'm growing towards that, I have not achieved my goal. And so I'm, I'm, I'm wanting that I'm, I'm thinking like, when I get there, this will happen. When I get there, this will happen. And that's a rough place to be. And then I get there and then I'm excited for what a day, two days. And then I'm like, now it's 3 million. And so Mm -hmm. the, the way that traditional goals are set up, we spend 99.9% of the time in this space of not having achieved something. And then like a fraction of the time in, in the space of achieving, and then the goalposts shift. So for me, I like to focus more on systems um, where I show up every day and I do specific actions that I know will take me in the direction that I want to go. And so every day at the end of the day, I can look at my to-do list and say, Hey, I did 80% of these actions. I feel really good about that. So more of my time is being spent in this place of, positivity and and accomplishment rather than, you know, the opposite. And so the way that I view this to go back to your question is I I definitely have a long-term vision for myself, right? I want to be basically, you know, the the thing that I'm working towards is to be able to do what I want with who I want, when I want for as long as I want, like that's essentially it. And the way that we get there can happen in so many different ways. I mean, I could, I could grow my business to a place where it enables that. And, and somebody comes in and they, they, you know, run the business. I could sell the business. I could get an amazing opportunity over here where I leave the business and go do that. And obviously these wouldn't be very rash decisions, but uh, I just don't know what the future holds. I don't know what the opportunities are. So I kind of map out my general philosophy for what I want my life to be like. And then I keep my options open in the long term, but I get very, very rigid about my plan in the short term. So over the next six to 12 months, I have a very clear focus of the channels we're focused on, what I'm going to be doing, what I hope to get done. And then I tend to find that on that yearly basis, we're able to get a lot done, make a lot of progress, but we still are able to be agile. We're able to be nimble. We're able to adapt to changes, new opportunities, et cetera. So that's kind of what I'm getting at here. And so I, I, it's not to say like, I don't care what happens to me after 12 months. Um, but it is to say that anybody who is sitting here saying, I'm going to be in this very specific place, you know, five years from now doing X, Y, and Z, I think that can box you in and give you a little bit of tunnel vision and cause you to miss mm. out on some other stuff that could be really, really awesome for you. Um, or it also could throw you for a really big loop if something out of your control happens to you. And now all of a sudden your life and the facts and everything are very different from where you thought you were going. That's a huge adjustment to make. Mm. It reminds me of the phrase, which I quite like, which is clear about where you're going, but flexible about how you get there. Exactly. So that's, that's, that's yeah. you just said in like five words, what I, I said in five minutes, that, that's perfect. <laughs> no, but it's true. And actually, I suppose this is, this will be my last question and uh, you might recognize it or a version of it, but then reflecting back on what you have perhaps achieved in the 12 months, what's the coolest thing that's happened to you? Oh man. I mean, uh, it's a little over 12 months ago, but having, having our son for sure. I mean, it, yeah. it's like, that's something that I've looked forward to forever. And one of the basis or one of one of the reasons uh, that I decided to go the entrepreneurial route was it, it, like looking ahead and, and having kids. So I guess I'm breaking my five year plan with that because I had been thinking of that for much longer than five years. Um, but essentially, you know, when you have kids, as you know, right, like life changes and being able to be there and, and you know, be present and have flexibility is so huge. And so that's one thing I wanted for myself. So that's easily one of the, the coolest things. Um, but on top of that, I would say um, also making a hire for for my business. I mean, I, I never, I thought I would just go the solopreneur route. I never thought I was a people manager uh, and stepping out of those bounds and bringing somebody on um, has been like a really fulfilling and gratifying experience for so many reasons. Um, and that's not something I thought I would ever do. So again, uh, if you if you talked to me, you know, more than 12 months ago, I would have told you that I w- would have never hired somebody for 
our, our business, let alone career coaching. I wanted to do it all myself. And then things change. And it's been one of the better decisions I've made. So again, there's that that one year or kind of year by year plan in action. <laughs> awesome. Austin, great to chat to you today. Um, before we wrap up, is there anything else you want to leave with the audience before we close? No, I think, I mean, the biggest things I can say is if you're looking for a job, the, the best thing that you can do is to first, you know, reflect on the channels that you're using and ask yourself why you're using them. Are you using them because it's what everybody else is doing? Or are you using them because you feel that they play to your strengths and they give you the best chance of getting in the door? And if the reason is the first, if the reason is because it's what everybody else is doing, it's what we're told to do, I would just pause and, and reflect on that for a bit. And I might consider exploring other channels. And what I find to be best is if you have a, a variety of everything, you put a critical mass through them, you test them, you have a process for, as we talked about with the content creation, for analyzing, understanding what's working, and then you double down on what's working because it's going to be different for everybody. You know, I really struggled with online applications. My wife has the single highest online application callback rate that I've ever seen across anybody we've ever worked with. And so I would never go to her and say, stop applying online or only spend 10% mm -hmm. applying online because it's working for her. So I think any any absolutist career advice is is bad advice to take. And instead, I think you should listen to me and listen to other people and think about where their advice is coming from and how it applies to your situation. Then I would go test it and I would see what works for you and I would double down on, on what's working for you. So in short, don't just do things because everybody else is doing them or because some expert told you to do them. Take that information, assess how it plays to your strengths and the outcomes that you want to achieve then put it put it to the test go go put it in practice get some data and then decide for yourself that's how you're going to be the most effective in in the job search and anything else you want to do great advice austin pleasure thanks very much thank you ali i appreciate it that was my conversation with austin loads of gems in there I'm going to be exploring some of the ideas we discuss in the newsletter this week. You can check that out via my LinkedIn profile. Thanks as always for listening, and I'll see you here again soon.